Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So, Ben, did you bring back some wooden shoes from Denmark? Dude, no. I, I just, <laughs> uh, I listened to that at last week's episode in the Copenhagen airport, and I have to say that uh, some other people in Copenhagen listened to that episode too, and were a little mm-hmm. surprised to learn that they were wearing wooden shoes. Uh, you know, I would be too. In my in defense, <laughs> I am the individual here who gets the least amount of sleep, and I blame my children. I'm very sorry to the nations of both Holland and Denmark. <laughs> they both ride a lot of bicycles. Yeah, and there just are just similarities. Don't confu- see? Just don't confuse Denmark and Norway. That's what really will piss them off. Yeah, yeah but, that's but, right. But I, I, I think uh, we should have Danish uh, a security specialist on to talk about the uh, strategic differences between Denmark and and the Netherlands and their the differences <laughs> of their strategic <laughs> posture. Shane's asleep already. When you said Danish, like I thought maybe you meant the pastry, and I was sort of intrigued. <laughs> I'm sorry, Denmark. I'll send you a huge bouquet of tulips. <laughs> And just kidding, I'm kidding. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Russia on the Ballot edition. I'm Shane Harris, wearer of Canvas shoes today. Um, you are, you're looking sort of casual. Well, I'm, I'm getting, I'm a little cash today. I'm getting on a plane, actually. Where are you going? I am going to my alma mater, Mother So Dear, Wake Forest. Oh wow! I Are you ta- giving a talk? I am giving a talk. I yeah, so every year Are I you talk to wear wooden shoes. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I mean, like oh, this is what we're all doing in Washington. What's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> the games you can play. Oh my god, that makes them so self-conscious, especially Wake Forest students. But what should we really? Oh, oh god. <laughs> um, uh, no, but I, I, I talk every year to this group of uh, there's a journalism classes picked every year, and this year I'm going in person because my niece is in the class. Oh, Oh, Shane. And it's her birthday. So awesome. Are you going to embarrass her? Totally. Like, Are you kidding? Yeah, have to. Totally. I was like expecting to be like, should we pretend we don't know each other? I'm totally, when she walks, the, I'm going to be like, Maddie. Give <laughs> a big hug. The best little kid stories, <laughs> the ones that are most embarrassing are all the ones about how you suctioned their nose when they were sick when oh, they were babies. I would never do that. He was an uncle. Uncles don't uncles have to don't do, do that. that crap. <laughs> As someone who has a baby with a cold right now, now you have a thing where you like suck through a straw, Ew. which is like an innovation. <laughs> why, why, does the, why does the parent need to apply the suction? Can't because the... a baby can't like blow their nose on the little tube thing. Doesn't The bulb doesn't uh, do anything. Does it get in your mouth? No, there's like a filter. <laughs> like it's disgusting. I'm not going to pretend. This is these, almost everything about having children. These is disgusting. little animals are just yes. awful. They anyway, produce anyway, slime. Just, or... just make up that you used to suction her nose when she was an infant, and at she'll look at me and be like, "Why the hell did you do that?" <laughs> uh, so you could breathe, you ingrate. <laughs> You're alive because of me. <laughs> 
Oh, meanwhile. wow. <laughs> meanwhile, back on planet Earth, I'm here in the jungle studio with my friends from Rock and Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. All of you wearing wooden shoes. We're all wearing... And none of I'm us are just as tired today as I was last week, so frankly... <laughs> yeah, I, it just hasn't I don't know stopped. What's I feel happen. like I really haven't kept caught up on much sleep. You can't catch up on sleep, but... No, definitely not, not today. It's not possible. On the podcast today, possible package bombs are sent to prominent Democratic political figures and Trump administration critics. And we're going to wrap up the Russia story so far and ask what it means for the midterm elections. Notice I said so far, we're not going to wrap up the Russia story. No, uh, if only. What am I going to do when the Russia story is wrapped up? What What are all of us going to do? Are, what are, What am I going to do? No, it's my life. <laughs> I mean, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Um, first, let's talk about breaking news today. We're recording the podcast on Wednesday in a number of uh, suspicious devices that look to be uh, improvised explosive devices. It's not entirely clear uh, uh, what's inside of them. That may be clearer when you listen to the podcast. But we know that they were sent to, uh, so far, I think confirmed, George Soros, uh, the Clintons' home in Chappaqua, New York. I think the Obamas' home here in Washington. There was a package sent to CNN addressed to John Brennan, who, P.S., is an NBC contributor, but whatever. Uh, and then Eric Holder, care of Debbie Wasserman Schultz. There, there was been some sort of strange, uh, I guess, confusion a little bit, trying to clarify why some of these packages were sent to people via someone else. But it, what appears they all have in common is either Democratic politicians, Trump administration critics, CNN being a, a media organization. Um, we're not going to try and recap exactly what's going on with the investigation because that'll, by the time you hear this, that may have changed. But it, it struck all of us that uh, we've kind of been here before, right? I mean, insofar as this is very reminiscent of the last big male scare we had, which was the anthrax attacks. Uh, so back in 2000, one October. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it's it feels like that to me, not only because it's packages and unknown and and so on, but it also feels like that to me because that was in the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. We were all traumatized and freaked out and not sure what was coming next. And then these people started getting sick and dying, and it turned out this sneaky biological agent was being sent through the mail. And it was one of these moments where it felt like something in our societal fabric was falling apart and our sense of basic security was collapsing, and that was pretty scary. And yet law enforcement did its job Media organizations adjusted their practices. The U.S. government adjusted the way it dealt with incoming mail. And we all went on about our lives and we managed. And I think that this, too, is a moment that feels really dire. It feels like a lot of our social norms are fraying. Our political norms have frayed and, and torn the president, you know, was at a rally the other day glorifying the body slamming of a of a reporter. And then this happens. And so I think we're all feeling pretty disoriented today. And sadly, that feeling is familiar, but so too is the knowledge that there isn't, we can get through to the yeah. other side of that. And I mean, it, it, a lot of what we've seen happening today revolves around the interception of these packages, the identification of suspicious materials in the package before they were ever opened. 
Ben, I mean, the reason why that happened is in some degree because of the experience with anthrax and places, media organizations, political offices, sensitive buildings put these protocols in place. We have them at the Post. I mean, media organizations have them across the country today. So I was at the Post during the anthrax attacks and, you know, our mail was stopped for it must have been at least a month, maybe more. And you know, they just uh, intercepted everything and screened stuff. And when it restarted again, that was actually, I think, the point in my life where the PDF became, you know, the fundamental means of engagement huh. for a document was, yeah. you know, it used to be that somebody would curry or something over right. or, or email or, or mail it and you'd drop, you know, overnight it. And we stopped being able to get physical mail. And, and all of a sudden the means by which you transacted documents was Adobe Acrobat and, um, Maybe and attached files, which of course raised its own security issues over right. time. But we didn't know that at the time. Right. And, um, you know, there was an earlier incident at the Post, which uh, was also important, which was that Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, sent his manuscript to the Post, not a bomb, but a uh, the the document that the, the manifesto that the Post and the Times under request from the FBI eventually ended up publishing was sitting there unopened in the Post's newsroom in a package. Uh, well, when and the you ep- guys didn't know it wasn't a bomb, right? Well, we didn't know. You know, I, I think – I mean I wasn't there at the time. I was there when, by the time he went on trial and some of this came out. But when I believe when the FBI called the Post and informed them that the uh, – uh, Unabomber had sent a, a manuscript and was demanding that it be published. The Post was unaware of that and had to find it in in back mail. And so I think these two incidents where like people were sending really scary – one was a person capable of sending highly lethal bombs and the other was a person who was actually sending anthrax. And of course, no anthrax was ever sent to the Post but to other media organizations – uh, these two events really, uh, you know, at certainly at the post, but at lots of organizations, completely changed the way packages are processed and the way mail is processed, and including by the U.S. Postal Service. And you see that today, uh, when lots of you know these bombs are mostly not being delivered; they're being intercepted. Uh, in postal service deliveries facilities, postal service routing centers uh, by these screening tools that were put in place uh, early and the Secret Service, you know, has them, uh, you know, announced today that no, none of these pack that these packages hadn't actually been delivered. And that's a, you know, that's a remarkable accomplishment, I think, just as a law enforcement matter. I will say also, you know, there is exactly one person, and it is Ted Kaczynski, who has ever sent a bomb through a mail, the mail, and not been tracked down pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an area you want to talk about walking into the molten core of federal government investigative competence. Uh, you know, Ted Kaczynski managed to do this for 17 years without before he got caught. I don't think anybody else has managed it for 17 days. Right. And so, 
you know, this is a person, whoever this is, this person who can't get Eric Holder's address right. Um, <laughs> and doesn't and, know where John Brennan works. And doesn't know yeah. where John Brennan works. And I, and I do think it is not unreasonable to hypothesize that, you know, federal law enforcement will be, will be very quick on this one. Yeah, so I think it's um, uh, you know one it's sort of important to note that it's it's sort of miraculous that we've come through this entire day with this. You know, we don't know what level of sophistication these explosives are, but nobody has been hurt, nobody yeah. has been killed. You know, uh, of course we hope that that's going to um, you know endure. Uh, you know, until they recover all of these various packages. You know, I I think Ben's right. It is uh, just a testament to sort of the competency of law enforcement. You know, that said, I do think that um, this is the most dramatic example. It's sort of it's it's uh, it's raised these issues uh, into into the public consciousness in a way that actually, if we look back now, there there's been other things that have happened that have sort of you know been blips on on the radar screen. Um, one is that an individual was arrested for threatening a mass shooting. At CNN's Atlanta headquarters. Um, this is somebody who actually had obtained weapons, I believe was on his way uh, to, you know, to headquarters at the time. Um, this is a story I was aware, with, aware of mostly just because I, I'm under contract with CNN. And so I was aware of sort of their security uh, you know, response. Um, you know, obviously, uh, that is tied to sort of the president's rhetoric more generally. Um, you know, the other is this ricin threat against, uh, right. against uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis. Uh, also, another sort of bizarre story that popped up. I don't know that anybody has actually confirmed what the substance was. Um, you know, but we are seeing these sort of, um, you know, threats of various types of ideological or political violence that are, are popping up more and more and more. And so I do think that this feels like um, a lot of different trends coming to a head in a really alarming way. And, and thank God, not in a, yeah. in a tragic way. I, one thing, I want to kind of interrogate that question because I feel like it's a little bit the elephant in the room, which is, does the president bear some response? Responsibility for what's happening. These were all devices that were sent to prominent critics of him, Democratic politicians, <clears throat> CNN. These are all people and individuals that he has not just demonized, but I think has not so subtly called on his supporters to um, attack, maybe not literally. Uh, well, but he and is Brennan, certainly, he retaliated against himself. True. Right. So, I mean, like, I mean, Ben, maybe you've been a Take the take a first shot at this, but I mean, did this? Did the president has the president created a climate in which it was likely inevitable that something like this was going to happen, or 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 is that the wrong way to look at it? Uh, both. Look, a, a follower of uh, a devotee of Bernie Sanders went and shot up the uh, congressional baseball game, right. and it is, uh, I, I think. Not a reasonable thing to say that that is a function of Bernie Sanders' rhetoric. And at any given time in American politics, there are a lot of crazy people who are willing to use violence and have varying degrees of capacity to use violence and are crazy. And their craziness sometimes is inflected by uh, political concerns or political movements. Uh, so – Pizzagate. Right. Pizzagate is, a, is an, uh, an example. But look, a more direct example is, you know, abortion clinic bombings, mm -hmm. right, where those are much more idea-generated acts of terrorism, right? And so until you know who did this and how directly they were idea-generated rather than crazy people looking for a script, you can't answer that question. What you can say is 
Trump's rhetoric is irresponsibly violent, and he calls when you when you call on people the enemy of the people, which is what he calls the press, and he gets people chanting CNN sucks at his rally, and he. One reasonable hypothesis from that is that you're going to focus a lot of people's craziness and rage in that direction. And so I certainly wouldn't say the it is unrelated to the climate. That said, you know, it would not it's not a reasonable thing to say at this stage that it is any kind of direct result of anything the president did or said, and you certainly uh, don't want to be, uh, you know. But if you were advising the president and he said he said to you, "Should I be talking this way?" You would say, "Absolutely not." You could get right. somebody killed. Yeah. And that's what Arthur Salzberger, the uh, publisher of the New York Times, told him. You right. know, if you keep talking this way, you could get somebody killed. Um, so it's not as though this isn't some an idea that he's been confronted with. Uh, but it's also clear that this very divisive rhetoric, the rhetoric of demonization, not only against organizations or sectors, the media, CNN, the New York Times, but against individuals, is uh, it's a it's a rhetoric he uses over and over again because it works for him, because it's highly, highly effective. And so here we are two weeks out from an election that is extremely close in a lot of places, that is very high stakes for both uh, major parties and for the president and for the opponents of the president. And you would hope, I suppose, from a moral perspective or a perspective of let's all come together as a country, you would hope that politicians on all sides would tone things down a little bit. But two weeks out, I think it's impossible to expect that. And I also think that this president, despite the words of unity that he himself uttered today, I think it's impossible to expect he would give away or even soften his use of a tool that he finds so effective in mobilizing his base. So he said some fine words today condemning violence and talking about national unity, and he's going to have a rally tonight. And I bet he will be as fired up in terms of demonizing his opponents as ever. Uh, and if he's not, the crowd will goad him into it. And that gets to the other point, which is that I think to a certain extent, we're already past the point where one individual political leader could reshape, you know, the tone yeah. of discourse. I, I actually think this is something that would take a kind of grand bargain, you know, a meeting of all the dons around the table um, to shift the tone of our of our national political you lost conversation. To I lost a son. Tatalia lost yeah, exactly. a son. <laughs> and and it it depresses me utterly that that's the point we're at, because it's very hard for me to envision that kind of grand bargain with our current leadership. But I I actually think even if he canceled tonight's rally, it wouldn't make a difference. Yeah. Actually, I think this touches on sort of, you know, there's a little bit of attention and, and you never want to get too far ahead of the facts in these kinds of circumstances because, of course, you don't know who did it and you don't know why they did it, um, uh, you know, versus sort of um, ignoring the obvious or pretending as though there isn't sort of a logical set of conclusions and assumptions based on sort of the collective targets. Um, you know, there, there is one um, feature in which, you know, this occurs sort of after every single one 
one of these types of attacks. Um, and, and that's expecting law enforcement agencies to use particular terminology, in, in particular the word terrorism. Um, and, and uh, you know, the term terrorism and domestic terrorism is a, is a legal term of art. Uh, it's relevant to what type of federal investigation they can conduct, an enterprise investigation into a group of individuals. You know, and so um, we should expect, uh, even if we're in a place where, um, where I do think it's responsible to sort of have the obvious conversation uh, about why this might have occurred and, and the general context in which it's unfolding, we should want to see a more restrained uh, uh, sort of response and, and terminology. We shouldn't overread that uh, for, for agencies. You know, that said, this really is um, a pretty uh, classic example of a need for presidential leadership. Um, this is a scary thing. It is scary to think that there are bombs spread out over a particular city. Uh, certainly, it has to be scary among any individuals who think that they might possibly be on the target list. It's scary to, you know, postal workers, law enforcement communities, people who work in mailrooms, and just the general American public. And this really is a moment in which you uh, you would expect a president to come forward uh, and, and actually uh, demonstrate real leadership that reassures the nation that things are under control. And I think it is an example that even whenever we see Trump play acting the right way, sort of saying the right words, those rare instances, instances in which he can actually muster it, it rings so incredibly hollow and so incredibly empty that we are left in, the, in these moments really with a, a, with a tremendous void and vacuum. Maybe after November 6th, we can see a little more leadership. We'll see. Um, we're going to turn our attention to November 6th. We're going to talk now about the Russia probe so far. We're going to break this into some chunks here, and we want to eventually get to the question of what we think that the Russia probe and what we've learned so far in the investigation over – what are we like? Are we two years in? Can we say two years? It's not two years yeah. of Mueller, but it's – yeah, it's, it's, it's basically two years. Two years right? since the FBI began. Uh, what we think that pertains to the midterms. Um, but, but first, let's just start with like a, a – spend a brief second on – the fact that there was an assumption, I think, going into this period from between Labor Day and the midterms in November that Mueller would be going dark or that there wouldn't be a lot of activity. Um, and that seems to not at all be the case. Roger Stone uh, is still a target of the investigation. There have been many witnesses who've been called on that matter. Uh, the Peter Smith uh, line of inquiry is still kind of open. Uh, there's been somebody who's key to that called has been interviewed by Mueller's people three times. Um, uh, uh, new we also, indictments last There have been week? a new indictment right last week. Well, it wasn't was Mueller probe. It was DOJ. Right. But nevertheless, there is an indictment about meddling in the election in the period where we thought we wouldn't see indictments related to the election. So um, I just want to just spend a brief second on this and just kind of get everyone's thoughts. Uh, were we wrong to think that this probe was somehow shutting down in this period? Or like, what do we make of the fact that there's been, you know, some pretty intense activity, it seems like, coming out of things related to Russia and election interference? Okay, so first of all, anybody who thought it was shutting down shutting, yeah. misunderstood the right. policy. Right. The I think po we all kind of like wondered, was there going to be like a no indictments being right. brought? So there was going to be a lull, and there has been a lull. Um, the lull is – that the Mueller investigation is not taking and, – and for that matter, the DOJ – is not taking any overt public investigative steps that involve candidates for current election. It does not mean that the investigation is not continuing. 
It does not mean that the investigation is not free to act against people who aren't on ballots. It does not mean that the investigation is not free to act in exigent circumstances where it absolutely needs to, including against people who are on ballots. For example, Republican candidates uh, who have been indicted uh, in California and New York for House candidates for corruption issues in the last several weeks. What it means is that without a really, really, really good reason to do it, you're not going to take a major step, an overt step against a current candidate on the ballot in a fashion that could be prejudicial to the election. That is a limited policy. Mueller has and, and the Justice Department have followed it. It doesn't mean the Justice Department shuts down and goes on a long-term vacation in the period around an election. Okay. So there's been that. So lull is then the proper way to think about this, right? So where there hasn't been a lull is in reemergence of stories kind of taking stock of where we've been. Um, we've seen the New York Times did a huge comprehensive piece on the Russia story. My colleague Greg Miller did a, did a book uh, putting together the Russia story. Um, I did a piece on KT McFarland, like whatever Blast happened to her. Blast from the past. Right? her? All right. The New Yorker yeah. did a whole piece on the Russia Alpha Bank story, which we've talked about uh, uh, recently on the show. So there's been kind of a, a an attempt, it seems to me, to both revisit old threads. Uh, Wall Street Journal's even been doing some more Peter Smith you know, reporting as well. Um, and also kind of pull back and assess where this puts us and not lose track of other dots that have been out there on this you know, huge connected diagram, whatever we want to think of it as. So where then, if we if we're pulling back, and it's a huge kind of meta question, do we instead of asking like where we are now, do we feel like we're any closer to what has been the central question of this whole investigation, which is whether there was a criminal conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russia to interfere in the election? So. <sighs> I think the answer to that is yes. And I think what this lull, the reason why we're seeing all this reflection is because there is a lull and that offers sort of a the boiled frog opportunity. We've been so um, you know, caught up in just the constant sur sort of surge of news. It's hard to actually reflect on the pretty astonishing amount of information that we actually do have. So I tend to think about sort of the core of the investigation as, as having three parts. It's what the Russians did, what the Trump campaign and its associates might have done at the same period during the campaign, and then kind of what occurred afterwards, so the obstruction and, and the investigation. And I think actually if you, uh, if you look at each of those constituent parts, you can see that while we don't have the complete answer, at least to two of those questions, we are substantially closer or we have, we have a, a quite a bit more information than we did before. So this latest uh, criminal complaint uh, against the accountant, this Russian accountant, um, you know, it, it really lays out with astonishing amount of detail, uh, you know, these Russian information operations. We saw astonishing 
astonishing amounts of detail in the GRU indictments. And, and I do think that Mueller really has laid out a comprehensive case and just, uh, you know, massive amounts of evidence that really, really carefully map what occurred, what Russia did, you know, in a very, very specific way. And there might be more information to come out uh, beyond this point. But what we know now, I, I think we can consider that question kind of answered. About what the Russians did. About what yeah. the Russians yeah. did. Then I, and are doing. And are doing. In, right. in right. present tense. Correct. Then I think there are all these sort of lingering questions about what the Trump campaign did. So we still don't have a clear answer on this Trump Tower meeting. You know, the Peter Smith emails and, and whether or not there were any attempts to potentially obtain uh, obtain hacked emails. Um, now this new focus on Roger Stone and WikiLeaks, right? So we've seen the these Seychelles. Sort of, like there, there's right. a lot we still don't know about the campaign and its associates. Right. But those I think that's a good example, right? It's a story that sort of pops up and then we don't get an answer and it goes away. And then they're, they're coming back up again, right? It's still you, you've seen that even though it's um, it's dropped from the headlines, maybe the investigative reporters really have stayed on that beat. And so you have to assume that, you know, Mueller's team has probably stayed on that beat as well. Um, you know, the other area in which I, I do think that we're seeing a sort of a new flood of stories, and, and I think you're story on Katie McFarland is a good example of this, um, is in this piece, this obstruction piece about what happened afterwards. So, you know, I, I think we should be responsible in how we talk about accusing people of potential criminal conduct. Um, your story, I think, really strongly suggests somebody lying to federal officials, right? That's uh, whenever whenever we look at the mismatch between the representations made at the time, uh, right, that she didn't know anything about uh, what was discussed on these calls versus Mike the representation. Right. right versus representations that that's been made. Now, I think there's a mismatch there, and, and whether or not that constitutes a, a crime or anything else, you know, obviously um, uh, the FBI and Mueller's investigation appear to not be treating it that way. Um, but there are probably a dozen stories like that out there, and if we look at you know people from as lowly as George Papadopoulos to as senior as you know the National Security Advisor or the Vice President or the President himself, you know, we have this period of sort of of time in which people were making statements, uh, you know, to investigators uh, and in which lots and lots of people were being dishonest. And so I, I do think that there is probably uh, more shoes to drop. And I think that's an area in which we have not gotten a full accounting. So we've developed lots and lots of questions, lots and lots of sort of suspicious red flags. But I think, uh, you know, obviously sort of what the Trump campaign did on the collusion question is the core. But I think there's a second core, this this sort of obstructive effort after the fact. And and that one, I think, is the one in which we, we actually have the least information and, and seems incredibly significant. Does it matter or does it tell you guys, Ben and Susan and Shane, anything about where we are on that core that the president's lawyers are now preparing to answer written questions from the Mueller investigation? It's interesting. I was listening, you know, listening to Susan's account of it. I actually think we know more on the obstruction side than we do on the uh, collusion side. But I'm trying now, in light of what you just said, to justify that. And so, to me, the basic asymmetry is the collusion activity fundamentally doesn't involve, at least we don't know that it involves, the personal conduct of Donald Trump. Whereas the – although it is very clearly involves illegal activity as indicted by 
Mueller against the hackers and is indicted by Mueller against the um, internet research agency crowd. And as being investigated, I suppose we should be tentative here on the sort of Roger Stone matter. But there's very clear illegality in the Russia intervention side. Uh, but it doesn't clearly involve the activities or personal behavior of Donald Trump. The obstruction side is almost exactly the opposite. It is centrally about the activity of Donald Trump. And people always focus on uh, the Comey firing, but there's a hundred other incidents as well, right? The the tweets, the kind of brutality directed against uh, Jeff Sessions and Rod Rosenstein, the supposed interventions, the alleged interventions on behalf of Mike Flynn, only as an ancillary matter does it involve, say, misrepresentations by KT McFarlane or Mike, right? Like, or by Flynn himself. Centrally, this is about the activities of the president. The question is whether it involves anything illegal, right? Or whether it is simply managing the executive branch, as the president's lawyers would say. The president's lawyers clearly believe that, and whether this is a delusional belief or whether this is a legally savvy belief, that this is a political problem, not a legal problem, that the president has the authority to do all the things that he did. Some of them are eccentric and some of them are, you know, politically have, are going to cause him problems, but he didn't actually do anything that isn't authorized by Article 2 of the Constitution. And so their instinct is we can handle this as long as he doesn't give an interview, as long as he doesn't uh, actually subject himself to questions where he will lie. We can ride out anything. I don't know whether that's true. But but to Tammy's question about sort of the the agreement to have you know this written engagement, which obviously is designed to sort of avoid you know the the perjury trap question, you know there are certain questions that I don't think the president and his lawyers can evade even in a written form. Did the president of the United States instruct Michael Flynn to to have conversations with the Russian ambassador about sanctions? There is – I don't think that there is – I think that there are – we have enough critical facts at this point. We have enough of the narrative is sort of fleshed out around these sort of inflection points, these things where maybe we all sort of have our own assumptions about what actually happened, right? The the Air Force One statement, the, the, the meeting with Comey and, and the intention there. But actually, they are still technically open questions or, or the president actually hasn't given his account in a way that he is, um, uh, you know, would be committing a crime if he lied. And so I do think that that the answering of these questions, you know, assuming that Mueller isn't just going to, you know, kind of roll over and let them, you know, walk all over him, at some point, the president is going to have to have a come to Jesus moment and actually give specific answers on these things. And, and I think that the position he's going to be in is either admitting to something that is or should be politically catastrophic or is going to constitute a crime because it's not true. I, I can't, I don't see how he doesn't ultimately hit up against that kind of, that roadblock. Yeah. And look, I think this is one advantage he has as he faces those choices, um, that he'll be able to face them after the midterm elections. And if Republicans 
do well, which I think, you know, means basically survive uh, in these midterm elections, then he can claim that politically, you know, what he's done is fine. Uh, and it might not smell right to his critics, but his critics just got repudiated at the polls. So who cares about that? And I think that goes to Ben's central point that at the end of the day, the resolution of the questions surrounding the president's behavior is a political resolution through a political process, whether that political process is an election or an impeachment. Impeachment is also a political process. And so what that means is that these midterms are very high stakes because they will put a fence around the president's ability to demand political immunity from the public for whatever it is that he's done. And and by the way, whatever it is he might choose to do in the future. Well, that's a good opportunity now to, to pivot to let's talk about what it means for the midterms. And, and I'll kind of put my cards on the table with this to start the conversation. I think ultimately not that much. And the reason for that is I don't know that the public is really following this story very closely. And I'm not sure that at this moment, the public cares all that much. Um, that could change dramatically if Robert Mueller issues an indictment or a report that answers the capital C conspiracy question, which and I have to say is being both a reporter working on these stories for two years and being with the people who are working most intensely on these stories. I feel like if anyone has the answer to that question, it's Robert Mueller, right? And it's going to be answered by some kind of potentially exquisitely gathered piece of intelligence that actually unlocks the whole mystery and that we just can't see it as reporters because we can't get access to it. It's someplace beyond our grasp and our capabilities. But that revelation, if there is one, is not going to come before the midterms. So we go into the midterms where the polling very clearly indicates the number one concern among Americans is health care, which is why Democrats are talking incessantly about health care and Republicans want to try and pivot towards talking about health care too. Um, and then the economy and jobs kind of fall behind that. And all the polling shows foreign policy, where I guess I would sort of dump this a little bit. And even corruption, which is broadly stated in some of these polls, doesn't even come close uh, on the issue set that people really care about and that they want to hear candidates talking about. So it feels like to me, like, it, it, as an active matter, the Russia probe doesn't really have a bearing. Where it might have a bearing more subtly is if people have sort of baked into their perceptions of the president that he is the kind of guy who would cooperate with the Russians and he is the kind of guy who would fire Jim Comey to shut an investigation down. And that maybe has just become part of the sort of, you know, now the 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 soil layer <laughs> right on Trump. It's just it's just there and he can't get it off. It's just it's just a piece of who he is. But as an overt kind of matter, people thinking, hmm, I don't think I should vote for Republicans because of the Russia probe. I just don't see that that it's a factor. Look, I think it is clearly right that it is not having a deep-seated impact on the midterms. Uh, and the evidence of that is that, uh, first of all, the president's approval rating has been remarkably stable over a long period of time. But not Bad, strong. Bad, but stable. Bad, but stable. Yeah. Bad, but stable, right? So somewhere between a low in the 538 average of around 36 percent to a high around now of 43 or so percent. And it fluctuates within that zone uh, uh, depending on lots of variables, by the way, not including – 
revelations in the Russia investigation. It varies according to, you know, how how anxious people are about uh, chaos in the White House and that sort of thing and, you know, all sorts of things. But I don't detect any particular Russia effect there. On the other hand, there are a very large number of people within the 57% of people or 50, 55% of people who really don't support the president, who for whom uh, the sense of him as not on the up and up and there being something really wrong about Donald Trump is highly inflected by the Russia stuff. And I'll you know, I'll concede I am one of those people. Like, on, I I don't think there's anything he could ever do to convince me that he's sort of on the up and up and a good leader. But until I understand exactly what his relationship with Vladimir Putin was and ex- exactly what his relationship with Russia money is, I will always have a question and I will never be among the people who is really, you know, kind of looking to give him a fair shake. And that's one of the reasons. And so I I do think that that aspect of it has a profound effect in just conditioning a large proportion of the electorate to saying there's something really wrong here. Yeah, although I feel as though that isn't going to move votes for the reasons that Shane noted. And, you know, let's let's also posit that you, Ben, probably aren't the swing constituency, right, in the in this election. Um, two things. Midterms are one at the district level and at the state level. They're not usually yeah, not Trump's usually not ballot, right? he's not on the ballot and and we aren't voting as a country. Um, and so local politicians ability to address local issues like pre-existing conditions and healthcare costs and infrastructure, you know, and potholes, those things matter more in a midterm. Um, and I've been, you know, I've been saying all along, the voting public doesn't care about the Russia investigation. I do think there's one way in which the Russia investigation translates into public perceptions that could affect electoral behavior. And that's that to the extent that the White House is seen as obsessed with what's going on in the Russia investigation or having to respond uh, in a way that takes up a lot of their time and attention to developments in the Russia investigation, to the extent that they are seen as in chaos over the Russia investigation or, take you know, succumbing to being dragged down by it. That creates a sense of chaos and distraction that frustrates people who want to see their government, no matter who's running it or however corrupt that person is, actually doing things that matter to them. What I think might frustrate voters is the sense of chaos and distraction from the business of the people. And one of the things that I think happens when we see dramatic developments in the course of the investigation is that the president kind of goes off the rails for a few days and everybody sees him going off the rails in public. And one impact of the lull, if we are actually in a lull now in terms of investigative developments coming out in the next two weeks, is that he's not going to be in that place over the next two weeks. He's being very disciplined, very focused on spinning up other issues that mobilize his base and get them out. And he's not having to respond yeah, it's to Kavanaugh and Caravan, which I mean, which in, 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 to that point, too, 
he one of the reasons I think he has seemed more on message and at ease lately is because the Russia thing is not in his face. And when it is, it is like a swarm of flies around his head and it drives him nuts. Yeah, so I, you know, look, I, I do think that the that the conventional wisdom that midterms are often referendums on the president is is probably right, and I, and I do think that the Russia investigation conditions more things than we're necessarily giving it credit for, just because people don't sort of specifically identify. So I think this last point that Tammy made, you know, that it's um it's the the thing that drives the tweeting and the insults and the sort of erratic behavior. It's also I think hemmed him in in a substantive policy ways. I think it has created suspicions with Republicans on the Hill. Uh, I think it's probably one of the reasons why fewer Republicans were willing to go along with him uh, sort of in attempting to facilitate a, you know, a Saudi cover-up. Right? There, it, it has created a, a level of distrust and also an inability for the president to maneuver uh, in ways that I do think undermines his ability to sort of to pass a larger agenda. And so you know, I, I do think that that stuff, it permeates sort of this entire administration. The other thing is that there have been these moments in which they are of such remarkable significance that we don't hear anything about it afterwards. And for me, the single moment that feels like it it must still be reverberating and, and we just haven't heard sort of the impact yet. And that is that the president's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, stood up in court under oath and accused the president of the United States of a crime of directing him to commit a federal campaign finance violation. He said that under conditions in which the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District must have believed that he was telling the truth in that allocution. And that was a moment that was of incredible, remarkable significance. And we haven't heard anything from it. And so I, I, I still, you know, maybe this is my um, like foolish optimism at, the, at this point, but I, I do still think that there is, um, there are moments that really do have the possibility of changing people's mind about the president and who he is. Uh, and that maybe we haven't fully seen sort of the impacts of that. And, and maybe the ultimate Mueller report will be a catalyst for all of those sort of anxieties coming forward. Um, you know, but I do think that uh, I think that whenever we see whatever, uh, you know, electoral impact we're going to see, uh, some portion of it is attributable to the Russia investigation, even if we can't directly match the polling. And I think we should also remember, too, that as much as the Democrats, the Democrats are not running on the Russia investigation, I think, in part because healthcare is polling so kind of crazy off the charts as to what people are concerned about. But also, it's always just struck me that they are keeping their powder dry. They want to see how many – if they can take back one chamber or both chambers of Congress. They're very careful about running on the impeachment issue. There's been this sense for I think for two years quite palpably that the Democrats are perfectly willing to attack Trump politically on Russia but want to be careful about how they campaign on it. And the midterms I think will help them start to calibrate how much of an issue they want to make. And you could imagine ahead of the 2020 campaign – commercials, you know, with, you know, the Michael Cohen statement running and with the Trump Tower stuff and just constantly reminding people, even if it's not a matter of Donald Trump is connected to Russia, 
questioning his leadership, questioning his character, questioning whether he's committed crimes. I mean, it seems like all of this is just ammunition that is sitting there right in reserve. Uh, the Democrats clearly do not need to expend in the midterms. Like there's no, there's no, there's no compelling reason to do it. In 2020, there may be, you know, every reason in the world to bring out the entire arsenal. And I think to your point, that's kind of where, where those moments where we all stopped and went, holy crap, which we all did are just made for campaign ads. No, that's clearly right. And look, the president, the the Democrats don't campaign on Russia matters in part because they don't need to. The press does it for them. You know, CNN and MSNBC can be uh, when news breaks, they're kind of wall to wall on on that stuff. And so to the extent that people are, you know, want information about it, they're being bombarded with it all the time in a fashion that constitutes a kind of um, not a campaign, but the sort of information that a campaign would would you know, be designed to generate. And so people are, you know, they don't need to do that. They can talk about their positive issues like healthcare and like the things that they want to talk about. Um, on the other hand, you know, eventually as assuming Susan is right, and I think she is. That always a safe assumption. Always <laughs> a safe assumption. Assuming she's right that there are these unanswered questions that are in one way or another going to get answered. You know, we're going to have a political decision about what to do with the president. Uh, do we just tolerate it? Do we uh, think about it in the language of impeachment? Do we talk about it all the time as a political matter? Uh, do we uh, ignore it, right? These are fundamentally political decisions and they're going to be the, – the world that we live in now is not factually the world that we're going to live in three months from now after the lull is over and after Mueller answers some of these questions. And, and that's a you – know, that's a different operating environment and for Democrats to wait until they know what committees they will and will not control and what – you know, what their levers that will be in their hands are is not a crazy thing at all. Okay. Let's move on to our own crazy things. Object lessons. Yay. Uh, yay. I have a crazy thing. Tell us your object crazy lesson. object lesson. <laughs> so my object lesson is a gift from one Benjamin Wittes, who we've moved into a new office space where we're all together now, um, which is glorious. One big um, happy lawfare family. One big happy lawfare family, um, just as you know, the Lord intended. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> since we moved into this office space, Ben has been uh, alluding to this thing that was coming and refused to tell me what it was, just that it was something, you know, bigger than a bread box. There was a <laughs> lot of, you know, I, I undertook, I spent, I spent a lot of investigative resources trying to understand. Uh, last week at the Lawfare offices arrived a uh, very large Lawfare neon sign. And I have to say, it's awesome. <laughs> it's so cool. It's like cool. the Lawfare pub. It's yes. like our seal. It's like cheers. It's, lawfare. Yeah. It's, it's perfect. It ties the whole room together. <laughs> it is, it's like a Budweiser sign that's like, now you're home. <laughs> I have to say designing the Lawfare sign 
uh, and having it custom made by the neon sign manufacturing company <laughs> was a great deal of fun. I'm I, sure they were like, you want us to do what? <laughs> they were, believe me, that's what they were like. When I first heard that you designed something, so you designed it, I would say, wait, did he actually make this sign? Like I thought you were like secretly a neon artist. <laughs> nope. Nope. <laughs> I had it made. It looks pretty cool. It is. It's awesome. Uh, you want to share your object? Sure. I am so excited. My object is the latest episode of the Bombshell podcast because I got to be on Bombshell nice. finally. Oh, you and weren't here when we did the guest. The I was not podcast. here when yes. we did the awesome crossover. You two, Susan yeah. and Shane, got to do it. I was not here when Ben did the uh, the mansplaining edition. The mansplaining edition of the Bombshell podcast. So I finally got to be on Bombshell. I got to answer the guest questions about my entrance music and. All that cool stuff, and now I just feel like one of the one of the awesome crowds. That's I, awesome. I still regret my answer to the entrance music. I can't remember what I said, but I should have shut the Jaws theme. <laughs> yes, so good. Huge mistake. Uh, ben, so my object lesson is a person whose name I don't know, but I was uh, traveling down the street uh, recently. And I won't say how I was traveling down the street. Oh, we all know. You're um, a segue. But, Seriously. Um, so this guy walks up to me uh, or jogs up to me as I'm at uh, a, a red light at an intersection. And he says, I'm listening to you right now. Wow. And this is Whoa. a jogger listening to rational security uh, and sees me going by and uh, stops me to say hello. And I was momentarily completely flustered, thought I was like being attacked, and then was completely charmed. Um, and so meta. This uh, like he was literally running down the street, listening to Rational Security, and uh, there I was. And Benjamin would have appeared to him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm not holding a giant sign. You are the message and the messenger. Um, yeah, the, the medium is the message. Yeah, the medium um, is the message. And so uh, I just want to say if you're running, if you're jogging right now, my object lesson is the mystery jogger. Uh, shout out to you. Uh, and the next time uh, I run into you on the street, remind me to uh, like actually get your name. Yeah. Um, or tweet at us and tell us who you are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cool. It, we love our fans. Yeah. If you're on Twitter, uh, uh, tweet at us um, uh, both at our at R-A-T-L security, security <laughs> and at Benjamin Wittes and just say, I'm the jogger, dude. Identify yourself. What if like 15 people suddenly ran? Like, it was me. It was me. It was me. Yeah, I am Spartacus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was Russian. Russian. Lots of Russian trolls. <laughs> if you're a Russian troll jogger, then, you know, we're up to you. We know what you're up to. Um, but we'll guess we'll have to wait and find out next week who he is because that Maybe we'll have him on. Show. Maybe so. Yeah. Maybe not. Anytime. <laughs> I don't know. That's asking a lot. <laughs> Rational Security is a production of Lawfare, where they have a great sign. And you can find our show page on, on the, the website, website of the same name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can follow us on Twitter, as Ben mentioned, at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave a great rating and review. It helps other people find the podcast. We really appreciate it. Our show is audio engineered this week by Matthew Kahn. The show is edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Donald Trump and The Hanging Vlad. <laughs> Ooh, good, good. Nice. I'm really proud of that one. That's that came good. in a flash, it's y'all. Yes. That was inspired. inspired. Like Sophia Yan, our constant inspiration, who is playing us out right now. Bye.
<laughs> On behalf of my friends Ben Wittes, Markoff and Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.